because I dunk the basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kid. Hello, and welcome to Dear Adam Silver, a show about sports, art, and the space they share. My name is Abigail Smithson, and as always, I am your host. On today's show, we have multimedia artist Bradley Robert Ward, who is based in Houston, Texas. Many of his current pieces are made in response to his experience growing up in a home where sports were second nature. The work touches on his relationship with the basketball players that have impacted him the most and the culture around the game. He uses the techniques of image transfer and collage to recreate iconic imagery with his own hand in a way that forces the viewer to redefine where basketball, as an art form, belongs. Um, And again, thank you so much to Bradley for coming on the show today and uh, really unpacking some thoughtful, important aspects of his work. And to all of you listening, please leave a rating and review on the podcast. That would be so helpful to me. And yes, enjoy the show. Yes, so I thought we could start today with just a little bit about your sort of background in sports and how you've come to basketball through through art. Yeah, well, um, I guess my sister is where I could start for the beginning of most of this, my, my dad was an athlete. He played baseball all the way up until college and he turned on a baseball scholarship, but I didn't really know any of that until I was in high school, I think. So my sister is four years older than me and she played basketball since I was born. So my parents watched all types of sports. They put us in tennis, swimming, like pretty much everything just to see what we liked. But basketball was the thing that gravitated towards my sister and I and she was always the best player in the neighborhood at the school, everything. So when I was growing up, like she was Michael Jordan and I was definitely happy to be Scottie Pippen. Um, And then I guess it kind of grew into like a Cheryl Miller, Reggie Miller type thing where I was good, but I couldn't beat her, but nobody else could beat her. So it was just, that's what it was. Um, And it was just in doctrine, I guess, into my family, even in my extended family, anytime we had like family gatherings, it was usually centered around a Saturday or Sunday. And usually sports, you know, games come on Saturdays so Sundays, whether it be football, basketball. So it was just something that's always been there for me. And it was the way that I communicated with the world for the most part. I have a question about that. Um, as far as was it something, did your parents sort of explain to you the importance of sports ever or was it ever sort of addressed or is it just kind of there as part of, as part of your life? No, I guess it was just kind of always there. I think that um, to me, it wasn't, I didn't really need an explanation, I guess. It was just something that you were not supposed to do, but you're supposed to expend energy outside when I was a kid. So it never dawned on me why I was doing what I was doing or why I gravitated towards it. Um, It just was how I always spent my time pretty much outside when I was a kid until I started playing video games. (laughs) Wow, yeah. And so there was just it was just built into the culture um, as far as just a lifestyle. Yeah. And how did it come? So I felt very much like there was a distinction about my artwork, like before I started making artwork about sports and after I started making artwork about sports. So I'm wondering how you felt that 
through your own work and how you kind of came around to it or if it was always kind of under the surface? Yeah, I, I didn't start making um, work about basketball until two years ago. So I didn't, I started drawing when I was um, in second grade, I guess technically because we had this program when I lived in California called the young Arthur's program. I'm not sure if it's still around, Mm -hmm. but you had to write, illustrate uh, your own book and your school published it for you. And it was terrible. Like I, at the time, I loved it, but it, it's so it's so hideous. I still have it. And in third grade, I was exposed to my first anime, which is I'm sure is everybody's first anime for the most part in America, Dragon Ball Z. And I was like totally blown away by it. And then like all these different like things connected to that, whether it be Pokemon or just like video games, all these different art styles, and I was loving it. And I just drew them constantly every day. Mm-hmm. So it started out with me just drawing and then me wanting to draw more realistically and drawing people. So all of my artwork pretty much until grad school was like realism and like trying to get the form down and really embedded in that. And then it wasn't until grad school where I realized I needed to make something more concrete and more personable and really dig deep on who I am and what my makeup is. And then that's when I realized, wow, like um, until I was 18, when I stopped playing basketball, I was an athlete. I wasn't, I didn't really think about the world in like terms of a regular citizen, if that makes sense. Like Mm -hmm. most of my time was thinking about, oh, I have to wake up to go to practice before school, go to school, make sure I eat enough for practice after school, come home, do my homework and do the same thing day after day. And it really wasn't until I got to college where I realized, wow, I have so many more hours in the day. Like, how do I become part of society again? And like, how do I do all these different things? And then when I got to I just wanted to make something that I had never seen before. And that's when I started to mix basketball in with my work. Were you throughout sort of being so so much of an athlete during your childhood and adolescence? Were you playing, were you, besides playing sports, were you also making art consistently at that time? Not really. I, I drew every day up until sixth grade and then I had my first art class in uh, my first year of middle school and I didn't enjoy that at all. I I think most artists don't really enjoy being instructed for the first time because it's like a joy that you have and it's a, like a passion. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, I love doing this learning my way and so someone is teaching you in a very com- uh, conformist way. And I didn't know how to express that. I just knew I didn't like it. And then I didn't really draw again until my junior year when I um, was ending you know, my tenure as a basketball player. And then I was taking these drawing classes and I really enjoyed that. And I remember my I was trying to figure out why was I loving this way more than I was when I was younger. One, I was probably more mature and understood what was actually going on and why I was being taught certain things. But I also think my teacher at the time wasn't really teaching me how to do something. She was instilling in the confidence in me that I could, can do something and mm-hmm. that it's, it's possible to do these things. And Oh my she gosh, gave a lot you have to give her a shout that. out. You have to give her a shout out. Um. Yeah, I do. Uh, her name was Miss Dunleavy. I, I oh. appreciate her very much. She was awesome. Awesome yeah. high school. Wow. Okay, so sorry. You you appreciated that and and it kind of things felt more open. Yeah, for sure. And then at what point in college did you begin to I mean, were you studying art the whole time that you were in college? I was. I went to two different um, colleges. My first year 
I went to school in San Antonio and UTSA and they had criteria where you couldn't do any studio classes until you were done with your sophomore year. So all of my first year was kind of like art history and like basic stuff. So I didn't do any of it there. And then when I came back home to Houston and I went to Texas Southern University, it was very much kind of like relearning the basics, which was really good for me because I hadn't, like I was doing it in high school, but it wasn't doing it in any like formal, like training way. So I finally got that my um, second year of college. And then I just went from there. Yeah. And what were your sort of, I've seen your newer work or the stuff that you have on your website and I'm wondering what sort of your first iterations of making artwork about basketball what what that was like and the other thing that I really want to address is that I have yet to associate your work with a specific medium which I think is kind of exciting um I think most of the other artists I've had in the podcast like I've, I've kind of had an idea about about what medium they're working through and and before you mentioned how much you loved drawing I didn't think about you drawing um so yeah if you could talk about that experience if you do have a medium that you're uh sort of tied to regularly or if it just evolves with the work i would i would say now i'm i i'm more tied to collage and and transfers and and, uh, assemblage like things of that nature Mm -hmm. um as far as drawing it's it was definitely my first passion and love but i got burned down it burnt out on it almost three different times in my undergrad. And I knew that this just wasn't the language that I wanted to use to communicate um, whatever my, you know, career is going to be. It's something that I can do. And I think it has its purpose, but for me, it's not like, it's not the thing that I want to keep doing anymore. So it was just kind of like tired of doing that. Um, And I just, at the end of my undergrad, I was taking several independent studies and I was, able to travel to New York with like some I I guess I was smart enough to use part of my refund to travel to New York to visit friends but also photograph both of my uh, several of my trips there and then also photograph what was going on around uh, my school and my neighborhood and I Mm -hmm. put together my own like uh, photo books so I was starting to do things that weren't a part of the curriculum I taught myself how to make a surfboard I learned how to make a neon sign like off of YouTube I was just trying so many different things because the school that I went to at the time was very traditional. It was drawing, painting, sculpture, and there was a design class, but there wasn't a design course really. Um, so I was just trying to teach myself how to speak several different languages because I knew that I wanted to find some type of grad program that was interdisciplinary and I wanted to be able to show that I could speak in several different languages uh, so I just went from there and I have, I guess, a, a bad habit of jumping around a lot, but I think that they all, you know, work together in some, some capacity. Yeah. And can you talk about your, your sort of love for the collage and the um, transfers? Right. Okay. So it was um, kind of the culmination of a few things. It was me really feeling like I didn't know what I was doing my first year of grad school and kind of submitting to the fact that I probably am not as good as I think I am at certain things and then trying to read and watch different interviews and or podcasts of certain artists that I really like. So a lot of what Arthur Jaffa said in in various interviews that he had about 
what the um, black community came over as and why we have a very a very real attachment to material as a whole and understanding that we were material when we came over. Mm. And then um, seeing Lorna Simpson's work over the past few years and then understanding that I, I'm seeing something and feeling something very real when I look at that and I feel a connection, like a, I guess a spiritual connection and just understanding that there's this, when I'm, when I'm working on it, I don't have a real sense of, I don't feel like I'm really controlling it. It just does what it does. And then reading and listening to everything, it kind of feels like it comes together on its own. So it's like a very, not necessarily out of body experience, but it's something that I know that I'm, I'm doing, but there's something else flowing through me when I'm doing it. So it's, it's a very reverent thing, I think. And it takes on a life of its own as I'm doing it. I'm getting to witness as well as participate. I feel like. Yes. That's so, so, so interesting. Cause sort of the, um, the physical part of collage is, can be kind of destructive almost. I mean, you're like taking apart things. Um, and so I, I mean, I think that that also is an interesting in relationship to what you're talking about with material, um, as, as, as far as, um, the treatment of people's bodies as, as material is also like a destructive act. Yeah. Um, can you talk more about your, this sort of, um, spiritual feeling you had about, uh, and as far as connecting these dots between multiple artists, um, and the spiritual feeling you had about looking at Lorna Simpson's work, if possible, and also this idea of when you started thinking sort of critically about the body, whether that's your body or the, the bodies of athletes or the how the body is a um, is a part of the the story of the African American community. Yeah, so it um, look, actually I was lucky enough at, at Pratt to have Lorna Simpson be our first um, guest lecture my first year. Mm. So it was really special to see her work and kind of see like, she kind of did a retrospective during the presentation. So that was really cool to kind of see where she came from to where she is now. Um, And then over last October, I had my grandmother passed away. So seeing um, Lorna's work and then being away from my own family, I was actually trying to make work about my family that same semester before my grandmother passed. So I not initially because of her passing, but I just decided to stop doing it right before that happened and go back to the basketball or oriented work. So seeing all that and have that um, transpire over my first year and a half and then seeing Lona's work. And then every time I saw it, it felt like I was uh, looking at my grandmother or my aunts or my mom and just remembering times and then looking how, looking at how she was using material, whether it be the inks or um, acrylics, and then how she's collaging, but isn't, it felt new to me. It wasn't just like someone, you know, putting car stock on something or, or laying it on top of each other. That really resonated with me. And when I was initially doing the basketball work, a lot of it was kind of just 
digitally putting a picture next to another one and then being um, kind of just having a conversation of, hey, these, the shape and form are the same in these um, old masterpieces and these basketball photography. So a lot of people initially were telling me to look at Hank Willis Thomas, which he's a definite, uh, definitely an amazing artist, but I didn't, I felt like that was just boxing me in. So I wanted to definitely do more than just conflate two images. So then when I came across uh, Arthur Jaffer's work, it really kind of pushed me forward, not necessarily his work itself, but him speaking about uh, the materialism and then thinking about I have an opportunity to not only retell history, but I get to help other younger black kids look at work and then be able to see what I see, but also take pride in what I saw in so many different athletes and what I saw in myself and how basketball helped me express myself as a person. Because as I said, uh, when I was younger, my sister was extremely great. So I was always somewhat in the shadow of somebody else. Not that I resented that or anything, but it helped me be my own person. I didn't have to be on the basketball court and be uh, Brittany's little brother anymore. Like when I came into high school, most people who were older than me were just like, oh, that's Brittany's little brother. They never called me my name. So when I was on the court, I could be whoever I wanted to be. I could be as loud as I wanted to be. I could be as physical as I wanted to be. Basketball gave that to me. So I wanted to not only exalt the body and what it looks like and what shapes it, it conforms to, but also understand that not just basketball, but sports as a whole allows a black body to do the different things that it's not able to do in society itself. We can be super physical. We can be dramatic. We can be sensitive. We can do all these different things. Even the way um, black men and women touch each other in sports is completely different and w- than what is accepted in uh, society as a whole, like the way we embrace each other, all these different things. So all that's important to me. And I wanted to also find a way to transfer the importance and the energy of all that through the old masterpieces. So that's why I was using a lot of um, uh, old imagery initially to establish that vocabulary. And then I was able to pull um, different references out of that without having to references, reference those pieces as heavily because I already created that vocabulary for myself and my work. Can you, since it's coming up, can you just unpack a little bit about that initial work when you're sort of comparing the photographs of basketball players in action to uh, these sculptures from like hundreds of years ago during the Renaissance uh, and and how that sort of evolved? Yeah, for sure. I think um, probably one of the most famous sculptures anyone's ever seen is David by Michelangelo and I think that's really fitting because there's so many photos of Michael Jordan like in repose or just bringing the basketball to the court just him by himself Mm -hmm. in solitude their bodies look so similar and him being like the most larger than life basketball player and then that probably being the most larger than life statue most people have seen that to me was always interesting and even like there's pictures of Michael Jordan in the dunk contest and the way his body's contorted, like his torso and David's torso look almost the exact same. And I remember the first time I ever saw this comparison is when I saw a photo of like the Spurs and the uh, Lakers in like the early eighties with, I think Michael Cooper was in the picture, Kareem, George Gervin. And I had seen a, um, a sketch for the head of uh, David and it was the same lighting same posture and everything and I was just thinking like how has no one ever like put these together or why aren't these black bodies 
given the same reverence as this, you know, old mm. drawing or this head or, or whatever. So initially it was me doing that and putting these side by side or like slightly on top of each other or catter corner to each other because I was initially going to try and make a book and make it, you know, relatively educational. But then I realized it could be much more than that. Um, so a lot of it was just kind of a, a one-to-one comparison. And I tried to get, surprisingly, there's a lot of uh, pieces and basketball photos that are really identical. I and mean, even if they're not, I'm just, I was able to find a way to bring out the shape and form and the similarities in them. There's so many pieces that look just like photos. So I thought that was really phenomenal. And it, again, it was something that I had never seen. I'm not saying that it had never been done before in some other way, but my whole goal was to make something that I'd never seen. I'm just wondering if you ha- had a thought about how just people related to to Michael Jordan's ability, um, as maybe as fans and in sort of juxtaposition to the word reverence. I don't think that it could be another word could be used because it was. I think the most interesting thing to me about Michael Jordan was like. Outside of Magic, I guess, I think he was probably the first athlete that I know that it really didn't matter what he was. Like, people loved that man, and people still love that man. And I think he's part of, well, he's, him and Magic are probably the biggest reasons why basketball, him, Magic, and Larry Bird are probably the reason basketball became what it was. Not probably. It is the reason basketball became what it was. Because, of course, in the 80s, you had... The, the racial tension between cities like New York and L.A. and you had Magic and um, Bird, but that also brought part of the country together. And then you had this one figure that surpassed all of that, and he was Black, and that matters so much to the Black community. But the fact that he is Black also helped the country probably more than any white superstar ever can, I think. I think that it's definitely reverence on the on the half of the black community, but I think in the white community, it's probably just groundbreaking and, and like awestruck because everything that probably any white man had a record for, Michael Jordan definitely beat it. If and if he didn't beat it, he tied it. If not that, I mean, he was just above and beyond anything yes. we could possibly imagine. And I think that's also why he's he, he's a perfect example of why I was trying to make those comparisons because all these paintings and sculptures come from some type of biblical reference and not only are these athletes real and in real time but most of their own mythologies mirror a lot of those things in religious texts or from those references of those paintings so I think all of it is just trying trying to understand what it means to be awestruck about something that's actually real. Mhm. Wow, that is so yes. That's a really important thing to identify because it it's it's happening in front of you or if it's not happening in front of you, it's happening on the news later as things are replayed right. or on Twitter later. It's 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 happening in your lifetime and you get access to it in some way. Um yeah. but it's also how do you reconcile what makes you feel like it's a surreal event with the fact that it's it's actually real and it's actually a person that like a a human being you know um right. 
rather than a, a representation or a um, something that a story from from hundreds of years ago. Right. I think that's such a. I think it was such a special time, especially for the '90s. We had so many things. Uh, I mean, I was born in 1990, so I don't have full mm-hmm. like contextual uh, knowledge of myself for the '80s. But I know the only other athlete I can think of that probably would have come close to that is Bo Jackson. But he was, of course, you know, injury struck him. But this, I remember watching the the ESPN documentary about this guy, and they were always saying that the, the most interesting part about Bo Jackson is every story you tell about him sounds like a tall tale. But all mm. of it is, I think only maybe one or two of them weren't true. And if they weren't, you believe it because you've seen other things that he's done. And the fact that this man played two different sports at the same time, of course, Deion Sanders did it, and I guess he did it more successfully. But Bo Jackson was an absolute freak of nature as an athlete, and he still is, and he just, he was incredible. And a lot of, you know, a whole a, a history as a whole, everybody walks so somebody else can run. So I guess that's prob- probably got us to Michael Jordan mm-hmm. being ready for that. And the, the I think the coolest part is everybody – got to witness Michael Jordan because there's so many people who didn't get to witness Bo Jackson even when he was doing his things. He played on the, the West Coast, so a lot of stuff East Coast people weren't able to see. But Michael Jordan played in the middle of the country. Uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure it was Eastern time, but still, he played in the middle of the country. Everybody saw it. He won six times, two different repeats. He played in so many different eras and just he was an, he's a he's a biblical feature. He's a He's a titan. Like everything about that person, whether it be his persona, his ability, what he stood for culturally, all these different things, and being able to try and like put that into words is impossible. And that's also why I think being able to try and explain that via my hands and doing something else, like it can, it can only be explained that way because it isn't. Like it, it, none of it does justice saying, do you remember when Michael Jordan did this? Or have you seen Michael Jordan do this? And you have to, you had to see it, feel it, hear it in real time. And it's never going to make sense to probably like my grandkids that this guy did this. Yeah. Cause yes, you're right. It was a moment. Um, I mean like a, you know, 15 year long moment, <laughs> but, but yeah. I mean, he, it was just, um, it was like a time and a place that I'm sure will exist again for another player in, in maybe a, a certain way, but, uh, it, it's a, it's not just about him. It's about him within this larger context. Right. Yes. Um, Yeah, I just loved him. I mean, I was he was like the first person I ever had a crush on as far as celebrities go. I just I thought he was just he was everything. <laughs> um he was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he just he seemed so charismatic and so um and I remember when his father was killed. I just yeah. I mean, I so I'm 2 years older than you, so I was also I wasn't really like a Bulls fan until the second three-peat until he had already come back to uh basketball but that doesn't mean i didn't own the vhs set that (laughs) referenced all those other years that i watched several times and just how he would speak about his his family and and his father and that photo of him and his father when 
uh, he wins the, his first championship. Um, it so yeah, he, it just felt that he he embodied so much, um, and that separate from the work that he created as as an artist, as an athlete, um, he was just such a force, just in general. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually want to read a part of your statement from your website, and maybe we could just talk about it further, because I think one thing I think about your work is... Um, I haven't also had someone on the podcast that's dealt with the body so specifically in both a conceptual way and a visual way. And so I really just want to continue, if we can, to just like unpack um, the issues surrounding the bodies of athletes, um, especially in basketball, because of it seems like more and more, and like this is a crossover, I think, between sports and art is like this idea of representation um, and how people are being rep- represented through photographs, through um, pieces of work. It's this question of who gets to tell whose story. Um, and, and also just that I think much of the the problems that we have, many of the problems that we have in the United States right now center around wanting to control each other's bodies in yeah. some, in some sense. And that is also, you know, from the top down white supremacy. So I think it's really important to explain this in every way possible, if that makes sense, just because I, I think it's how we relate to each other. It's how we understand each other. It's, it can be, um, a way to show love, affection, respect, um, sort of mutual respect, or we can treat each other's bodies as something to control, something to uh, hurt, disparage, because they might be different from ours, or they are different from ours. So this is sort of the crux of, of why I found your work, because you're marrying both the, the thoughts and the visuals, or it appears to me that way, and especially through the process of like taking apart and reconstructing. Right. Working with, for now, two distinct lines of work allow me to amplify the multidimensionality seen within black life, quite literally trying to mirror textures and raw materials notably amalgamated and fractured, then equating that to the fragmented physical, spiritual, and mental disposition of the black body. It continues to humble me. So I felt that this section of your statement really got to the... um, the point where the visual meets the concept and how it affects you to make this work. Yeah. Um, well, when I um, was speaking about that, I <clears throat> was referencing the work of, about my family and also the, the uh, basketball work. And I don't think that I have any of my family work on my website currently, but when I was actually, I was working on a, a piece about that today when I was trying to come up with, I guess, my first real concrete concept for my uh, grad work, I was trying to find something that could exemplify how I feel about my experience as a Black person. And I know that um, when I saw that through making something extremely personal and personable, you end up making something very universal. So I was trying to think, well, 
what is something that I've never really tackled about my experience and I've never really made, well, I've never made work about my family at all because I just, that's a, always been a private thing for me. I'm a very open person, but I know that my family necessarily isn't. But I knew that if I was going to really grow in this program, I'm going to have to tackle things about myself I don't normally look at. So I was trying to think of what are things that mirror how I feel about me and myself and the extended uh, relationships I have. So I, I eventually came across the te- different textures of stone, I guess specifically onyx. And I was looking at different um, agates and I liked the fact that they were, you know, literally comprised of these sediments and a lot of them have their own cracks in it due to uh, various reasons. And I was thinking to myself, that's pretty much like me. I've made I'm made up of all these experiences and people, places, things, but you know, I'm not perfect. I don't have, you know, the best relationship with all the different people in my family. So I felt like that was a real mirror of what I was going through. And then me learning really how to collage and transfer with that work aided how I worked with the basketball work. And I was trying to find ways to exemplify what is what what do specifically basketball, but what does sports mean as a whole for a black community? Because it's usually often the only way that black kids are able to really free themselves or express themselves if they don't necessarily have uh, an artistic passion or a creative passion. But even in that sense, you know, there's so many different ways that people play a game, think about a game or execute a game. Like James Harden doesn't get to the basket the same way that Steph Curry gets to the basket. It's just like, uh, using those other examples and then I try to find who were the original people to really bring that into the game obviously and one was really big in the early 2000s but if you take it all the way back you have the Harlem Globetrotters and you also have the Harlem Renaissance basketball team but they weren't necessarily doing that but I wanted to make work about the Harlem Globetrotters because they were literally the personification of what I was trying to highlight like they brought a new expression to the game. They brought happiness. They brought joy. And that's what I feel black people do. We bring that to everything that we're a part of. And that's what our culture is predicated on. But even still, learning that everything that a black person does with their body is a lyrical response to the environments that they're placed within. So me having gone to Texas Southern University, which is a historically black college university, I was around my people every day, all day. But I live in a suburb of Houston. My immediate family is from Third Ward, but my parents were able to get themselves out of that situation. So I've had a duality my whole life. The rest of my family lives in Third Ward and they get to see a side of Houston that I don't always see, but I went to school there. So I saw it, but I didn't have to live through that. So me understanding that I had a duality, so I saw people who were fortunate and a little less fortunate, but they all wanted the same things and they come from different things and I learned about them and I'm not necessarily trying to speak for all these different people but understanding that we are all disenfranchised we all come from something different we all have our own shortcomings every person of color is a fragmented person you're taking out of where you are from you're trying to navigate this grand white narrative and there's so many things along the way that either partially break you help you piece yourself back together, whether it be memories, family, friends, or experiences, all these different things that get you where you need to get. And it's going to look different, it's going to sound different, and it's going to feel different to every person in that reality. So 
to me, that was the perfect personification of what it is like to have a team of people playing for one unified goal, and that is to win the game. We have to work together five on five to get to the, you know, either get to the basket or stop from somebody to get to the basket. But we all have our own way of doing that thing, but we are on the same team. So to me, when I thought about all that, I was like, that is exactly what it's like. We're all, we come from different things, but that doesn't mean you get to define me from what that is. I'm allowed to say that what that is for me. So that's what I was trying to do with the statement and with my work. Yeah, I, I think uh, it, it it comes through so effectively in the in the as far as the visuals go of the work. Thank you. Yeah. And do you feel as though there's more to explore with making artwork about basketball or how does that or using basketball as a sort of diving in point for for finding other compelling sort of stories, narratives, ways to to tell uh Yeah, I think there's always gonna be stuff um via basketball to delve into. I also know that I'm a, I'm someone who makes who has to have experiences to make work. I'm very bad at like just making to make, even though I should do it more. Um, but I, I always hit a wall every now and then, and then I'll work on something different and then it will immediately spark an idea back for more basketball work. And I'm hoping that's what's going to be happening now since I'm trying to make something a little bit different, but I know for sure it's going to help me with my basketball work. Um, but yeah, for, for sure. It will always be the thing for me because it's it's the nexus of everything I've ever cared about pretty much. A basketball will forever be a part of me. It's definitely how I learn to communicate first. So it's it's gonna be my first language always. And what about the idea of making to make? Uh when have did you accept the fact that you didn't uh just go through the motions? Because I think it's something that so often is um that you have to sort of make some shitty work to get to the good work, which I think oftentimes makes sense that you kind of have to, you know, go through the motions and, and until you find the thing that really compels you. But at the same time, after a while, you just want to make the, the good thing (laughs) and, and not, and not just be sort of, um, creating, especially when it comes to, materials and objects and things like that like I recently have realized how much and I think that's this is where the podcast comes into play a little bit but like I'm so sick of like clutter yeah. uh and so the podcast I love as a form of art because it doesn't take up any space it's like this thing that exists just in the air minus yeah. minus um the tiny little corner of my closet where I record it just like leaves the closet and then it's I don't have any responsibility over it. Whereas, you know, with every other art that I've worked with, it's like protecting it and framing it and keeping it safe. And so I don't know if I always want to just like make things for the sake of making them because then that's just more stuff. Yes, I, I, it was very tough in the grad program because you're around several people who have different, you know, methods and mythologies and then 
it's tough because when you're stuck, you're looking at all these different people making stuff, whether it's good or not. You're like, wow, they're really making a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm sitting over here like, I don't know how to conceptualize any differently. And my professor's telling me not to draw. Don't use, you know, p- pencil and paper or pen and paper. And I don't know what to do. So a lot of it was uh, really tough to try and reconcile with that my, with that within myself. Um, but you definitely have to make the shitty work before you can make the the good stuff because you're more than anything you have to learn what doesn't work so you can build on what does work so it's it's it have been flows i'm lucky enough to right now not be on any real deadlines like i have some that are coming up early next year but definitely not having any immediate deadlines helps with not feeling like i have to make 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 but you know, I, some of my friends aren't that lucky. Well, I guess they are pretty lucky because I do have the deadlines I need to keep making. So I right. keep making money. You know, monetizing your work is definitely a real thing. But it's it's it, it's an ebb and flow. And you have to know what's comfortable with yourself. Like, I will definitely force myself to sit down at least and think about it or, like, maybe write some stuff out. But I won't always, like, be making, making because I just, I personally can't work that way. Yes, I hear that. One more thing I wanted to ask about that goes back to what we were talking about before was sort of being kind of in awe of Michael Jordan and what he could do and all of that. Um, I tend to get frustrated sometimes because I feel like as a fan, as, as someone who hasn't played that much organized basketball in my life, I think that as a fan, I'm supposed to be passive, not in the sense of like cheering, like I can cheer as loud as I want and I can tweet as much as I want and I can I can buy jerseys and, and something like that. But this idea that they're for every sort of amazing play that I see done by an athlete as a traditional fan or in that traditional role, I'm not thinking of the amazing thing I can do to respond to that sort of creation. Mm. And I think that I've get a little bit frustrated because of that being a part of of organized sports is that there's this active participant and there's a passive participant as far as the the performative aspect of it goes. And I think that I don't want to be a passive participant. I mean, I want to watch basketball and sometimes that means that I'm sitting on my couch, but I want to I want to respond to it. And I was wondering if you had. Um, if you had had similar feelings or, or can understand that? Yeah, I, I think um, over the last year and a half, I've been able to, not in exact real time, but I've been able to react much publicly, much more than I had, you know, from my first 27 years. Now that I'm, I'm 29 now. Um, I think, I've made work based on like what I've seen the night before a lot more now. Um, a lot of my stuff does reference like the the nineties and like real late eighties, but I have made some work, whether it be about LeBron or like some other people that have been in response to just seeing something the night before. But as far as like, right when I see it, I have never thought about doing that. But I think, you know, honestly, technology has definitely helped with that we wouldn't have like some of our biggest like buying stars or like youtubers or instagram people if they weren't making real-time reactions to stuff that's happening whether it be on sports scene or a highlight or just seeing stuff like i know well i don't know them personally but there's probably at least 
five Instagrams I know off the top of my head that have made like a living off of recreating like Euro steps or like what LeBron did or the chalk toss, like all these different things. And I think that's a really cool way to do that. But I also understand that me just thinking the way that I do, I would like to, you know, have a little more weight than that within what I'm saying. But, you know, entertainment is entertainment. But I think, you know, I think there's there's more ways. The more technology comes out, there's more ways that for us to be active in our fanhood, I guess, and, and publicly displaying that. And besides just cheering or just jerseys or like hugging somebody, high-fiving somebody and keeping it in within that like proximity. I haven't really used all of them to those extent, but I think it's cool that so many different people are finding different ways to do that. It's just never been an interest of mine of like doing that on any of like those social media platforms. But I've never really thought about like purposely, I guess, making a in real time response to what I'm watching as far as a basketball game, I guess. Yeah, and I think, I mean, in some ways I'm thinking about in real time and in other ways I'm thinking about just the idea of not just taking in but also, like, putting something back out. Mm -hmm. So I think this idea of just when I'm watching a game, I'm trying... Sometimes, I mean, I am just watching the game and there's, like, some pure joy in that activity. (laughs) But this idea that I want to look at it through this lens of all this other information I have and, like, what's going on in the United States that day when this game is being played or what's going on in the city or what's the... What what are all these other things that play into this very moment? Kind of like how you were saying Michael Jordan is, like, like you can't just... It's impossible to explain to some extent. Wanting to find that type of experience other places through certain context of what happened that day and and what's going on and and putting onto basketball sort of like projecting onto basketball other elements of our society yeah i you know that's a great point i think kind of the apex of that was a few years ago with the donald sterling thing and the clippers Mm -hmm. i think that's you know for unfortunate reasons but a perfect example of like the social meeting the i guess in some ways economical and um in sports so like that venn diagram was definitely overlap overlapping during that point in time i think it's also tough because you know for all intents and purposes it's entertainment so it tries to separate itself from those things but i also do think it's really cool that we have athletes like lebron or like a, a couple others that are willing to speak out on stuff or at least let their opinion be known when it's asked but I think it's really tough because not most of them aren't ready or comfortable speaking on it. So those those worlds don't always, you know, collide. And I think it's it's definitely worth thinking of in that way because I mean I probably wouldn't have made the work that I made if I never thought about it on some sort of existential plane. Mm-hmm. Um, but I th- I, yeah, I just think that it comes. Like if, if that's something that you're wanting to do, if anyone listening is wanting to do, it comes. And I think sometimes it's just like you said, trying the shitty thing first, and then getting there through some other means. But a lot of stuff, 
you know, everything informs everything. So I think it's just trying until you try. But sports for me is it's tough sometimes because if it's not basketball and if it's not two teams I really like, it's just white noise to me. Like if I have the TV on, mm. it's probably on some type of sports thing, but I'm usually not paying attention. I just need the sports noise on because that's like normal for me. And I'll just be working on something. I'm not always paying attention to it. So that's like the, the squeaks and the whistles and the cheers. Yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. I, I feel very much the opposite that it takes me like 30 seconds, no matter who's playing, to like pick a team and care so much about this team <laughs> that I just found out about and just want them to win so badly. <laughs> I mean, that, hap- that happens to me too. Like I, I used to play soccer and I, I'm not too, like outside of the Premier League, I'm not too familiar with everybody in like, La Liga or Serie A in like Spain and Italy, but mm-hmm. if those teams are playing. I'm like, I know that guy, but I like that, you know, those jerseys more. So I'm probably going to just be really impartial right now or pick that other team. But if it's a Premier League we're talking, I'm definitely taking Chelsea over everybody. So if you're listening, <laughs> any Premier, Premier, Premier League fans, Chelsea all day. Yeah, so they can um, at you if they need to. <laughs> yeah, at me. <laughs> Yeah, I also think there's this ongoing issue with the with the players that do end up sort of speaking out about different sort of social issues or issues that they are invested in and care about is that once they do it like one time, we want the the crowd <laughs> wants it about everything all the time. And I think that's difficult because again it goes back to this idea of what what is the athlete offering to the spectator and what does the spectator offer back to the athlete because not only do we want to be entertained and excited and like sort of fascinated by what they're doing but then we want them to also take on things off the off the court um i mean I, unless you're someone who thinks sports and politics should be separate uh so i think it gets a little dicey because it's like we want all of these things and then what are we willing to to offer in return right i mean i think it's i think it's dumb because because i think the game itself obviously should be separate because we're playing the game but it's just it's so weird because we live in this time where we want all these people to be celebrities and we want these people to be like these large and life figures but the moment they disagree with us or the moment that like they become human in our eyes. It's like, I don't want to hear from you anymore. But like, what, what do you, do you expect to get along with everything that, it's kind of like what Shay said, because I listened to the episode that you had with uh, Shay Serrano. If, if if I disagree with that person, I'm just probably not going to have the conversation because it's not going to, it's most likely not going to get to the point that we wanted to get to. And if we disagree, then that's fine. We can agree to disagree, either go our separate ways or just, you know, not talk anymore. But, if I don't like something an athlete says, it's not going to weigh on me the way it used to when I was like 15. And I can think of Carmelo Anthony as a perfect example for me because I loved him so much. And I think when he had a chance to go to the Bulls and he did not go, all the the hostility I was holding in my body, one day it just evaporated because I realized this is a man trying to provide for his family and play the game that he likes. And if he if it really doesn't boil down to him about winning championships, I can't hold that against that man. He's doing his job. He's providing for his family and he's enjoying himself. Why? I just need to let it go. It's not that deep. Mm-hmm. And once I started, once I did that, I was like, wow, man, none of this really matters. None of this really matters. And I never thought about that. But 
I guess Carmelo Anthony taught me the meaning of life. Cause I just, yeah. Wow. I mean, I, 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 I think it's just interesting because it's like we we want to. It's so hard to put there. It's like some of these lar- larger than life sort of celebrities, or that that's how they're shown to be, and the athletes. It's hard to remind yourself. Yeah, they're just a person. They're just a person trying to make the best decision for themselves or whatever. Right. And it. I think that individuals can remember that I think like as a whole as like a media culture that's not the that's not the narrative that's pushed forward like the narrative that's no. pushed forward is like that they they are like a different sort of they have different existences than us which of course they do but it's like when it comes down to it decisions are still made based on same things that the decisions are made for people who are not professional athletes right and I just People need to remember that. It's not, at the end of the day, none of it's really that deep. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I know. Well, especially when all I want to do is have sort of conceptual conversations about sports and art, and then you're gonna, you know, say that after all of this. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's definitely like important for sure, but I think us holding on to holding on to thoughts and principles that these people have expressed is not necessary because I, I, I could go all day about Allen Iverson because to me, obviously he's not, but he's the greatest player of all time to me because of what he meant to me and what he meant throughout my life and to like a culture that I saw every day. Allen Iverson meant so much to me because when I was playing basketball as a kid, every, every basketball court I went to that was outside or not in my neighborhood, there was a kid that looked like Allen Iverson, that talked like him, that played like him that did look up to him, but none of us had to say that. We knew who that was. Allen Iverson was reflective of what I saw every day playing basketball. Like people like John Stockton didn't exemplify who I was playing basketball with. And there's nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with John Stockton, but I feel like early in his career, the NBA was not putting stock in the fact that Allen Iverson was literally changing and exemplifying a culture when they instituted that dress code rule, which in hindsight, sure, it, it was in principle, it's fine because you want your players to look presentable, but at the same time, that's an indictment on him and where he comes from in his culture. And like, what's presentable? Right. That's a that's a that's probably the most passively racist thing that's ever happened in sports history, outside of I guess free agency. But we just accepted that. But Alan Iverson literally was—he taught me that I could be who I wanted to be. Like again, like I was saying, he taught me I could be larger than life. And be who I wanted to be. I was always small. I'm not even six feet. I'm five eight, and he was the, often the shortest person on the court. But he could do whatever he wanted to. He could score on anyone. He could do anything he wanted to do. He was the MVP. And when he won the game one, the 2001 Finals, that is the greatest moment in basketball history for me. I'll never forget that. That's just. The larger-than-life moment for me is that moment right there. Everything that Michael Jordan did was great, but nothing meant more to me than seeing him win that game. They did not win the series, but no one thought they would win a single game. And he torched the Lakers, and he did it by himself. He probably, that's the second-worst team ever to go to the finals outside of LeBron bringing the 2004, I think. Four or five, maybe it was 2006. 2006 Cavs mm-hmm. to the finals to play the Spurs. The team was 
atrocious. But Allen Iverson doing it with Eric Snow and Aaron McKee, like he had no offense. He had forty six. He had, I think forty eight points that game. I just can't 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 put it into words. That's the stuff we should hold on to. That's the stuff we should hold on to. Yes, and just like the excitement, as far as I think, also just like that this power that comes with like lifting someone's story up, like continually telling that story, like with so much excitement as you just did, is so much better than the critique aspect of this person didn't do enough, or this person should have made this decision, or whatever. This the separation that comes from when you you think that someone. has like a wildly different uh you know that that just there's it's just difficult yeah i i mean i think in general there needs to be less loyalty from fans personally mm. because the more loyal you are the more you're obviously you're more susceptible to be heard but you have to understand that this is a business the owners aren't loyal to you they're loyal to making their own money and the more players, the more power the players have, the less loyal they're going to be to the team. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you shouldn't hold either one accountable when none of them promised you anything. We're all human. Yeah, we're all human. Great. Well, maybe that's a good place to end. I don't know. <laughs> the fact that we're all human. Um, do you have any... I so, so Yes, as we had discussed before, sometimes it's tricky to get into like in- intricacies about specific pieces on a podcast when of course people cannot see what we're talking about but I just want to give you the opportunity to share as much as you'd like about about your work and about the direction it's going or about um how you know just anything you'd like how it's evolving uh yeah I guess um like you said I guess it's hard to go into specific pieces but I would just I guess I'd preface it by saying that I wholeheartedly believe that I'm my work is nothing without the people that I have looked up to or referenced or been inspired by. And that's definitely mostly women artists. Like I mentioned Arthur Jaffer, but probably outside of him and uh, Yashua Close and I guess Hank Willis Thomas, I can't really name another male artist, Robert Pruitt, but Lorna Simpson, Wendy White, um, my friends that I went to a Pratt with, uh, Janae Sumter, Alana Fields, um, my friend Latanya Allen and Jasmine Hayes, like all of them who went to Hunter SVA and Pratt with me. I'm inspired by all those women, um, Julie Moret too, all these different people that have really influenced me on my work. And a lot of them make work about being a fragmented or disadvantaged franchise person. And all of it comes from personal places and experiences and injustices. So a lot of it comes from just wanting to be seen. Like I said, I just wanted to make something that I had never seen before. That doesn't mean it's never been done, but I know that my experience is unique just as all of theirs are. Um, So a lot of it comes from a place of me wanting to fully exalt the people, places, and things, the culture that got me through my entire life and wanting to, you know, place the, the place the right emphasis on what, what it did for me. Cause I know it does that for other people because I have been approached and said, Hey, this reminds me of this, this, and this, and I really appreciate you, appreciate you doing that. 
So now I'm doing the right thing and it's always going to evolve. So as long as you're open to, I guess, understanding that this is coming from someone who's trying their hardest to just express how much I care about something that impacted me, I think you'd, you'd like it. If you like sports, obviously you're listening to this. Um, and I guess one last shout out to Devin Jamal and Princeton, who also went to school with me in, in New York. I love all of them. So. so nice to give credit to the people who kind of influenced you from afar and up close. Yes. So this idea of if you enjoy sports, that's like an access point for for sort of looking at your work. And I'm wondering how I'm just wondering how people who because my whole um, some of my own personal focus is this idea of making work about basketball as sort of someone who who loves it and but it's also this idea of like using basketball so basketball is so much bigger than than me and my existence as like a cultural phenomenon that I want to sort of use it in the sense that the work can be about basketball but it's about all these other things that I, I think that people should care about in a sense you know and and, and as far as your story goes that people sh- your your story is worth telling whether there's, you know, this iconic image of a basketball player involved or, or, or whatever it is. And so I'm wondering how, how you feel about that as far as do you think people need to have an interest in sports to sort of dive into your work or where you start with that? No, I don't because most of, almost all the people who I, I was showing my work to in graduate school had zero reference of any other players really outside of Michael Jordan. A few people recognize Kobe and LeBron, but I'm still, every time I think about it, I'm like dumbfounded by the fact that I really had to explain who Alan Iverson was to so many people. Yeah. But I also think the coolest part is when I was able to have my solo show this past April at the Los Angeles Athletic Club. That's a private institution that most people in the surrounding community don't get to go into. And it's not... I don't think it's necessarily because of me, but I was given the opportunity to have a show there that's, you know, housing work about basketball and so many other social, um, social and cultural things. But everybody in that building who came through had basketball intersect in their life in some way. Mm-hmm. And that's all they needed to come in to see it. And most of the people outside of that, and, and whether it be in my program or the fine arts arena, most of them were able to come into the conversation via the art history side. And even when I made work that wasn't directly referencing the work, the titles usually do, or the position of the people usually do. So a lot of them come in and say, hey, this reminds me of this. I'm like, hey, I'm glad you said that because this, this, and this. So I think I would have to say that I've done a good job of being able to create several access points. And there's so many other things that come into it. I've had other people who say, hey, this reminds me of when I um lived in Boston in the 80s and there were so many different racial things going on and I was like it's funny you say that because this isn't this yeah so it's been it's been really great and you don't have to have basketball knowledge really to come into the conversation and I think that I've done a good job good job of that yeah and I think that like you're saying there's things there's certain things we share um and even if it's not 
Alan Iverson from everyone. There's certain touch points about all these different sort of entities that we're talking about. So it's like the David, Michael Jordan, things like that, where even if you have a bare bones understanding of art history or, or basketball, you can kind of like sneak in <laughs> because there's still there's still something there and like as you you said a little while ago where it's like the personal becomes the universal and I think that's really important to remember because I think it is we can only tell our own I think we tell our own stories the most effectively and I have felt sometimes with some bodies of work that I've like because it was so there's sometimes where it's so specific that you can feel a little shut out, but in general, mm-hmm. the more when people get specific, they're also specific to culture. And then when they let yeah. in culture, that's when it's like, oh, I know about that. I know some context for for why this piece is being made. And not that everyone needs to understand every aspect of your work, but as far as just like a little, a little way to get in, a beginning point. I think it's I think that's a a powerful, a powerful way to kind of use cultural entities and and take them on as your own yeah that's actually something that you know was a big hurdle for a lot of people in my program and i, and I think myself as, as well um when i was at pratt we it was tough because when when you're making the work you obviously know what it means to you and how you're able to explain that but a lot of times when you're explaining it only from your point of view it's really hard for other people to come into that conversation, especially if they're coming from different cultures or cultures that have different backgrounds. And that's very, very tough. And it can really shut out other people. But once we learn how to put your, your story in the larger narrative and you're able to explain it in that way and then say, oh, for example, like this, this and this, or just make the compare and contrast when you're doing the, when you're having the conversation, it helps you, one, with your elevator pitch, it helps you explain your work and it helps you being able to see yourself in a broader context, which will help you make better work at the same time. It kind of goes back to what I said earlier, like what I have learned about a lot of stuff, not that none of it, not that, not that all of it isn't good, but a lot of times it's really not that deep. Like sometimes people are looking at work and they're like, wow, I really wonder what this means. And it could have just been somebody having a bad day and letting it out. (laughs) Yes. Like sometimes that's just what it boils down to. Yeah, or like the liter- the literalness of cutting something up and reconstructing right. it. Like that's a very um, – that process is not necessarily hiding anything, yeah. you know, uh, physically. I really appreciate you sharing everything that you shared. Yeah, thank you for having me. I don't – half the time I don't even know if I was really answering your question. I tend to make that mistake, so hopefully I, I did a good enough job. I think so, definitely. And I think that I also am learning how to talk. You know, I, I wrote, I've written about basketball and, and issues of of racism within the sport and things like that, but it's hard to sometimes verbalize things in a coherent way, but I think these conversations are really important to have because right. they're at the crux of so many uh, social issues and just like this like perpetuation of of uh white supremacy over and over again and this is just one iteration so i appreciate you being patient with me fumbling my way through some of those questions because i i'm yeah verbalizing it is not easy
No, I, I definitely understand. And again, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. All right. Thanks so much for making this time, Bradley. I hope you have a good night. Thank you. You too. Take care.